So um, thank you for being here. It's a real pleasure to be able to share this work with you. Um, and I'm very happy to tell you that I've uh, just completed my uh, doctorate at UCL. Um, <laughs> so uh, this will be the first presentation that I'll be giving as a doctor with PhD. And uh, in the fall, I'll be moving on to uh, Goldsmiths as a visiting fellow, um, trying to, to develop some work on uh, health care algorithms and uh, speculative design with Alex Wilkie and Marsha Rosengarten. So um, let me just give you an overview of what I'd like to uh, cover in my talk today. Um, I'm going to start with some background on this research, which comes from my, um, my thesis. And then I will go ahead and uh, present my analysis of the challenges that were faced on the ground uh, during the design and deployment of a mobile learning intervention for Kenyan health workers. I'm going to argue that these empirical findings have ways, uh, implications for the ways that we understand marginalization and social justice. And then, um, since my research and background is not in higher education per se, I'll try to end a little bit earlier and um, make some propositions about how I think um, this, this work might play out uh, in your research uh, on the digital university, hopefully as a way of opening up a lot of questions and dialogue. So again, um, this work comes from my thesis, and the aim of my thesis was to deconstruct the working relations of design and use in a, a participatory action research project. Um, I wanted to interrogate the relationship between um, user participation, empowerment, and poverty alleviation. And I also wanted to articulate better the role of scientific expertise uh, in these kinds of digital technology projects. Um, my questioning of participation drew from work done in develop, development studies um, almost 20 years ago. Um, participation had become the new orthodoxy <coughs> in development practice, um, largely in reaction to failures of uh, top-down modernist infrastructure projects of the 1960s and 70s. Um, development scholars began to question this prevailing wisdom that community participation was an inherently good thing. Um, this is a quote that comes from a paper by uh, Francis Cleaver on water resource management in rural Zimbabwe. And it's a, a key work uh, that led to the publication of Cook and Kothari's book, uh, The Tyranny of Participation, which was a collection of really um, seminal critiques uh, in, in the development studies literature. So Cleaver writes, there's a need for a radical reassessment of the desirability, practicality, and efficacy of development efforts based on community participation. Participation has been translated into a managerial exercise based on toolboxes of procedures and techniques. It's been domesticated from its radical roots. We talk of problem solving, participation, and poverty rather than problematization, critical engagement, and or class. The focus needs to be expanded away from the nuts and bolts of um, implementing participatory development projects a more dynamic vision is needed of community and institutions that incorporate social networks and recognizes dispersed and contingent power relations and the exclusionary as well as inclusionary nature of participation. So um, my research objective was kind of to um, try and unpack the local in this way. Um, with a growing number of participatory and user-centered projects um, putting out digital technologies for the poor, I wanted to take a more critical look at um, design use and participation. 
So the data um, for my analysis comes from a three-year mobile learning intervention um, uh, to train community health workers in Kenya. It was funded by the ESRC uh, DFID Joint Scheme for Poverty Alleviation, and the aims of this funding scheme was to bring a rigorous social science research to support the implementation of the Millennium Development Goals and generate new theoretical insights on how the use of ICTs could be used um, as a resource for poverty reduction. This was a partnership um, led by my doctoral supervisors, Niall Winters and Martin Oliver, um, out of Oxford University and UCL, um, in addition to Alice Lakati uh, from AMREF Health Africa, which is a, uh, an established NGO uh, in Nairobi with uh, really extensive health operations across the African continent. So um, again, our project targeted community health workers, and um, this is a term that has a really specific meaning in the context of global uh, health programs. The World Health Organization defines them as members of the communities where they work, who are selected by the communities, who are answerable to the communities. Um, they should be supported by the health system, but are not necessarily part of its organization. And they should have tr uh, shorter training periods uh, than professional health workers. So in the last 20 years, there have been large-scale investments to train and deploy these health workers. Um, this review by the World Health Organization and, and the Global Health Workforce Alliance uh, documents the wide range of services uh, these workers perform to strengthen national health systems. Um, these workers can act as specialists or generalists, and they can uh, deliver one or more of these functions. And they may receive training, uh, which is recognized by the formal health system and national accreditation authorities. But this training doesn't lead to a formal uh, tertiary education certificate. So here is an example of a high-profile global health initiative to train one million health workers in rural sub-Saharan Africa. That's another one, a broad coalition organized around the use of mobile phones to train community health workers. So the purpose of our project was to, to design, develop, deploy, um, and evaluate a pedagogically rich mobile learning intervention. Um, for us, a pedagogically rich learning intervention uh, entailed a, key, a set of key scientific practices uh, that I think are familiar to most everyone in the room. Um, we, first, we adopted a participatory action research approach to engage the health workers in the processes of co-design. Um, and then we also advanced practice-based theories of learning and informal <coughs> instructional approaches to teaching and professional development. And we looked, we considered this the preferred alternative to acquisition-based uh, theories of learning and traditional didactic pedagogies and classroom-based training. And um, our commitment to pedagogically rich learning meant that the, um, the design would unfold throughout the life of the project um, in acknowledgement and recognition of the contingent and emergent uh, nature of socio-technical innovations. So I had an um, insider-outsider role as a participant observer of this mobile learning intervention. And so the idea was that we would add a layer of critical reflexivity by having me carry out um, a concurrent ethnographic study of the laboratory life of this mobile learning intervention. 
Um, in the tradition of science and technology studies, I'd study, I would study the uh, socio-material practices of this mobile learning intervention. And in this way, we would collectively respond to the um, funding call for applied research uh, that also contributed to the foundations of social science in the domain of international development. Um, but whereas these classic studies of laboratory life um, tend to, in the tradition of Latour and uh, Woolgard, uh, they tended to be contained in uh, the predefined physical spaces of uh, scientific labs or design studios. The practices of our project were digitally mediated, transnational, and distributed across lay and scientific sites of knowledge production. So this meant that I had to adopt the uh, methods of multi-sided ethnography uh, developed by George Marcus uh, in the 1980s and later extended by Christine Hine in her work on um, virtual and connective ethnography. And it also meant um, that I had to establish what Beaulieu called co-presence with the mobile learning intervention, rather than co-location with a given set of actors uh, in a predetermined physical space. Um, this graphic is hard to read, but I've just included it um, just to give you an overall sense of my positionality in relationship to this mobile learning intervention. Um, the the um, column on the far left marks off um, Marks, is marked off in calendar months over the duration of uh, four years. And so next to that, next to that linear axis of time, I've plotted the funding period of our project. Uh, and then the red shows um, my access to an evolving online digital repository of project documents, such as transcripts, uh, meeting memos, uh, field reports. Next to that in blue is um, my face-to-face -face contact with researchers, officers of the non-governmental organizations, uh, and the community health workers. And this took place uh, during an eight-day field visit to Kenya, a three-day mobile learning symposium in Paris, and various um, capacity building meetings and, uh, uh, and other uh, forums uh, in London and uh, Oxford. And the purple uh, denotes uh, my digitally mediated interaction with these individuals through Skype, a WhatsApp learning forum, and a project blog. And then on the right end is um, the time frame of my ethnographic uh, narrative, which is marked off uh, according to chapters. So this shifting of distributed mediated positionality is what allowed me to follow the relationships between the health workers and a much wider global network of people and things. Uh, and I show this graphic um, about co-presence because I want to be really clear here that in engaging with the voices of these actors, um, I'm making claims about the connections between them. And so this, rather than representing anyone or speaking on their behalf, So it should come as no surprise that in my analysis of the laboratory life of this mobile learning intervention, I identified a set of socio-material practices that enacted and empowered the health workers as learners. Um, a group of 18 uh, community health workers and their supervisors were convened for a first participatory design workshop held at a training center in Nairobi. 
Um, our goal as educational researchers was to have these workers define their own learning objectives. And so through a series of design exercises, um, these health workers decided that they would use this new project as an opportunity to learn uh, more about the stages of normal childhood development and the early detection of disabilities. So in response, um, we looked to scientific expertise in public health and adopted a survey known as the Malawi Development Assessment Tool, or the MDAT, as content uh, for a new mobile phone learning application. The MDAT was developed by physician researchers at the University of Liverpool and consisted of a graphic questionnaire uh, con uh, containing 136 items divided into four domains of childhood development presented on four separate sheets of A4 paper. And along with this uh, came a basket of props uh, that the health workers would bring to them uh, when they visited the children in their homes in the communities. So because the MDAT um, was created as a diagnostic tool for health providers, concepts about childhood development were organized and presented uh, in a format resembling a job aid to guide the health workers in the clinical setting. And so in this way, explicit knowledge came bundled in the form of a scientifically valid validated protocol um, to promote experiential learning uh, as the health workers interacted with children uh, in community households. So loaded onto a succession of interface screens that look like this, um, the mobile phone app not only participated in the enactment of experi experiential learning actions, but they also um, recorded these phenomena in digital format. So this mobile learning application uh, was intended to en enact and empower uh, the health worker as a self-directed learner engaged in a pedagogically rich learning experience. But the handsets themselves are part of another set of uh, socio-material practices related to the market and to reaching the four billion uh, people at the bottom of the economic uh, pyramid. The mobile phone is, after all, a retail product manufactured to generate corporate profits uh, by appealing to the desires and purchasing powers of individual consumers. And so its shallow design inscriptions allow for user customization to maximize uh, consumer choice. So our participatory approach and an emphasis on collaborative learning also gave these individuals the freedom to use the mobile phone in the way that they wanted. Uh, and so with the health workers enacted and empowered, not only as active learners, but also as consumers, our new mobile learning application always had to compete with the phone's other connection, entertainment, and self-expression features. <coughs> but once the new um, mobile learning application was deployed in the communities, um, the health workers did uh, gain expertise on assessing childhood development milestones, and they earned the confidence um, of more and more neighborhood residents. Uh, at first, the majority of the uh, children that were assessed were found to be developing normally and didn't require uh, referrals to the local facility. Um, th now, this was consistent with the intent of the um, MDAT's originators, which was to detect 
early cases of disability. Um, but however, um, as these health workers gained visibility in the communities with the use of their smartphones and their newly developed expertise, our mobile learning intervention uh, began to enact performances that were unexpected. It began to um, draw out severely disabled children of all ages um, that had been hidden from the community and from the service providers. So this uh, community health worker reported, as a neighbor, I've been there so long, but I was not aware that this baby has disabilities. Serious. It took me a long time to understand that this baby has a disability because she, the mother, used to cover her, covering her from head to toe. Nobody bothered about them, the disabled children. We, the CHOOSE, or community health workers, we didn't know whether in our communities there were so many kids because every mother used to close her kid in the house. So the health workers, they responded uh, by assuming the role of disability activists uh, to empower these children and their parents. Uh, they developed paper-based registries uh, to identify disabled children, to define their clinical and psychosocial needs, and to direct them to appropriate uh, treatment and support uh, from the formal health system, the education system, and uh, local agencies with expertise in special needs care. And with the parents' permission, they began using the telephone uh, to take pictures of the children. And they organized parent support groups uh, to discuss the challenges of caring for children with disabilities. In one of the study sites in Kibera, um, this led to uh, the establishment of a microcredit scheme, uh, a joint bank account, and a system, an informal system of cooperative childcare. There was really this momentum, this growing um, movement in the community uh, related to these children. Um, this health worker reported there were 15 mothers. Now she's recruiting another 20. The, n the number now is 35. Even now, I know there's so many kids, and what we also ask ourselves is why so many children within Kibera were born with cerebral palsy during this time. In rural McClenny, the principal of a primary school um, organized a community forum. And he launched a proposal to build a special needs class that would require um, external funding for inputs such as staff, um, as well as the manual, uh, make the manual fabrication of mud bricks uh, by volunteers in the community. Because as he explained, if they are bound like this, they will be bound forever. We are here to chip in for them and to empower them. So earlier, I described how large-scale programs to deploy uh, community health workers uh, were funded and implemented by powerful global health actors. Um, though, so these programs aligned really tightly with the Millennium Development Goals, uh, which were a set of global policy priorities uh, with really extensive uh, accountability systems. Uh, these global standards for poverty alleviation shaped the operations of the health ministries and the non-governmental organizations in developing countries. So that in, that, in this context, um, the health worker was enacted as a health system CAD, as a sort of human resource for health system strengthening that was expected to produce measurable health outcomes, uh, which would empower the local communities. And the health workers were a part of this system. As this health worker states, we are the ones who provide information from the community health workers to the health centers. We link one another. We are the ambassadors. We want to find ways to link with the government of Kenya 
to see which kinds of methods and working systems that we may introduce. And we may be lacking because of lack of follow-up, motivation, um, skill, no addition of training, and so forth. So we're willing to get more ways of more training and more motivational ways of work. But disability is not mentioned in any of the eight Millennium Development Goals or its 21 targets and 60 indicators. So that funding, programs, facilities, providers, supplies, equipments, all of these practices circulated through the policy provisions of the Millennium Development Goals and its aligned um, accountability mechanisms. The health workers' newly developed ability to classify uh, and refer children with delayed milestones um, were enacted through practices that didn't overlap with this larger, more influential regime. And so to the health ministry, it was considered outsider knowledge and distanced the health workers from the formal priorities uh, of the health system. So the health workers' practices as disability activists conflicted with their function as health cadres, who are otherwise tasked, tasked with priorities such as HIV follow-up, hygiene and sanitation, malaria, maternal child health, as well as skills related to health education uh, and data collection and reporting. And when the health workers did refer children uh, to the local facility, there were often reports of frustration and disappointment among the parents who waited all day only to learn that these centers were not staffed or equipped to care for their children. So our participatory, practice-based, emergent learning intervention may have enabled um, these health workers to identify their own learning objectives and bring to the foreground the many unmet needs of disabled children in the community. But this did not give these workers or us the authority to redirect resources uh, to meet those daunting requirements. Uh, so my argument is that in this situation of resource scarcity, extreme pow uh, power asymmetries, and the exceptional mobilities of all the actors involved. Our academic attachments to ideals such as community participation, emancipation, fluidity, was not enough uh, to engage theoretically uh, or practically with the desires and disappointments related to the post-colonial nation state. I've traced how power um, was allocated through different transnational constellations of practices that can be understood as four distinct regimes of care that sought to enact the health worker as a learner, a consumer, an activist, and a cadre. So that the space that was now enacted by our mobile learning intervention was what Mole describes as fluid, with the blurred boundaries of its practices continually contracting and expanding and shifting. Um, so these ontological politics made the mobile learning project fluid, but this fluid let it, left it precarious, fragile, and prone to failure. So in summary, my argument is that the politics of design and use and contested definitions of participation were not so much a matter of geographic, socioeconomic, or global local divides but instead related to uh, what Anne-Marie calls the multiplicity of ways in which mobile phones, community health workers, and other actors lived in relation to each other on the ground.
So what's to be gained um, by understanding the politics of design and use in terms of multiplicity rather than divides? Um, it took a lot of effort to uh, deconstruct the local in this way, and the empirical setting was so demanding ethically uh, that it, was, it didn't seem quite right to end with a discussion about nuance and complexity. Um, certainly, these actors on the ground don't need social theory to know that their work is nuanced and complex. So I wanted to um, push a little further and think more about, even if the, even if the ideas aren't completely cooked, to, to push and think more about how this idea of multiplicity might support our practices as researchers, practitioners, and public citizens uh, who are concerned about the efficiency, efficacy, and equity of di digital technology, especially for the poor. So in this mobile learning intervention that I've just described, the attributes of learner, consumer, activist, and health system cadre were assigned to the health worker through the enactment of different socio-material regimes of care. And if we can think of these regimes of care as classification systems, then this work by Balkenstar becomes really very useful for um, exploring the theoretical and practical implications of multiplicity uh, with respect to digital technologies on the ground. Balker and uh, Starr argue, information scientists work every day on the design, delegation, and choice of classification systems and standards. Yet few see them as artifacts embodying moral and aesthetic choices that in turn craft people's identities, aspirations, and dignity. On the other hand, philosophers and statisticians have produced highly formal discussions of classification theory, but few empirical studies of use. So Balker and Starr, they build on, they build on Foucault's idea of the dispositif and the archaeology the of knowledge to show um, that classification systems can be analyzed simultaneously as both an informatic and moral practice. <clears throat> They argue that standards and classification systems reflect political and ethical choices that get blackboxed as they are integrated into the routine of everyday life, and that this erasure is accelerated uh, by the processes of datification. But these uh, standards and classification systems still have material force. They are social and moral orders that constitute what Balker and Starr call the built moral environment. So to interrogate these classification systems, Bowker and Starr argue that we need to be understanding marginalization not as a center margin or center periphery phenomena, um, but instead as a condition related to multiplicity or multi-membership. They write, people be who belong to more than one central community are also important sources for understanding more about the links between moral order and categorization. Marginalization, as a technical term in sociology, refers to human membership in more than one community of practice. So in this sense, marginalization is, is really rather the rule rather than the exception. We're all classified as members of many distinct socio-material regimes at any given time. But if, as in my empirical case, these different classification systems conflict, and negotiating multiple membership is not possible, 
then the marginalization that's associated with multiplicity generates a phenomena that Bauker and Starr call torque. They write, biography and categories fall along conflicting trajectories. Lives are twisted, uh, even torn, in the attempt to force one, another, one into the other. These torques may be petty or grand, but they are a way of understanding the co-construction of lives and their categories. So in my case study, the four regimes of care enacting the health worker as learner, consumer, activist, and cadre, they pulled and they twisted, and they exposed how incompatible regimes of care can lead to structural violence. So if this structural violence then comes from the torque of multiplicity, then social justice can't simply be a matter of emancipation or inclusion in relation to a single contested center of power. Instead, social justice becomes a socio-material enactment, a dynamic, evolving performance to manage or alleviate this torque um, brought about by incompatible classification systems. Bauker and Starr argue that information systems need to be stretched so that they affiliate with this multiplicity. They write, why should a computer scientist read African-American poets? What does information science have to do with race-critical or feminist methods and metaphysics? The collective wisdom in those domains is one of the richest places from which to understand these core problems in information systems design. How to preserve the integrity of information without a priori standardization and its often attendant violence. In turn, if those lessons can be taken seriously within the emerging cyber world, there may yet be a chance to strengthen its democrat, uh, democratic ethical aspects. They propose the following design principles uh, for technologists and designers to address the ethical and political implications of classification systems. They argue for recognizing the zones of ambiguity in classification systems. This means being attuned to multiplicity and acknowledging that people and objects are members of multiple regimes of socio-material practice. They argue for keeping the voices of the classifiers and their constituents present in order to retain maximum political flexibility. This has to do with making these regimes visible so that we can locate these different actors and hold them accountable for their practices. And finally, this involves being vigilant about who and what gets excluded from classification systems. All classifications or regimes of practice make a cut this le that leads to exclusions of other regimes. This is inevitable. Um, in it, so that in any classification system, we need to be asking what memberships are harmed or silenced, and what do we lose uh, by excluding these identities. So when this happens, Bauker and Starr argue that this can, um, this, can this can lead to the making of something called boundary infrastructure, uh, which enacts the artful integration of local constraints, received standardized applications, and the re-representation of information. So we can think of boundary infrastructure as um, scaling the local to the global. Uh, but not as a bottom-up or top-down exercise. This is not necessarily about the outright rejection of standards or the replication of best practices. 
um, as an embodied sociomaterial practice to negotiate multiplicity. This concept of boundary infrastructure opens up the possibility that in our pursuits of social justice, we may, uh, we may have other options besides just cutting something loose or swallowing it up whole. So I don't really know the literature on higher education, um, MOOCs, and open education research uh, resources. Uh, and this presentation has described um, a mobile learning intervention uh, in the health context. And my prior background is in epidemiology and public health informatics. But um, so in the spirit of interdisciplinarity, um, and as a student and hopefully academic in the digital university, um, I'd like to propose some ideas um, on how this research might play out in your work uh, on the digital university. I'm going forward, I'll be interested in seeing how this idea of marginalization as multiplicity plays out in the collection of papers that um, Jeremy and Michael have described and in the lived experience of exiled academics um, that will be discussed later today. And I'm eager to see if these virtual and physical, formal and informal spaces uh, that these activities enact on the ground can be understood as forms of boundary infrastructure that materialize our aspirations for a better world. So more and more we're talking about imaginaries as socio-material enactments of alternative futures. Jasnov and Kim have written, the concept of socio-technical imaginaries builds in part on the growing recognition that the capacity to imagine futures is a crucial constitutive element in social and political life. Imagination is no longer seen as mere fantasy or illusion, nor is imagination simply understood as residing in individual minds in the form of aesthetic considerations. In short, imaginations viewed as an organized field of social practices serves as a key ingredient in the making of social order. So here's a socio-technical imaginary um, of, a, of an alternative future that I'll just put out there. Um, the digital university as boundary infrastructure. One that accommodates multiplicity through the artful integration of local constraints receive standardized applications and the re-representation of information. One that's distinct from the market and the state. And one that through its social material practices assembles together um, collectives of diverse heterogeneous artisans co committed to peace and justice. So finally, um, I'd like to close by inviting you to go to these links to learn more about the mobile learning intervention that I've just described. Uh, my work is just a slice of what was envisioned and accomplished, and I would just like to take this opportunity to thank Martin Oliver and Niall Winters um, for allowing me to participate in the project in the way that I did. Um, I know there's a strong tradition of self-study in education, but I, 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 thought, I think it's really bold and very generous of them to, have al to allow me to read and uh, write and think about the project in the way that I did. And so I'm really very grateful for their support and trust. So these are the references, and then I think we can just open it to questions, Jeremy. Yes. Yeah?